Okay, let's take our Bibles <clears throat> this evening and turn to First Timothy. First Timothy, chapter two, uh, this evening, and let's begin reading from verse one. First <clears throat> Timothy, chapter two, verse one. It says, "I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority." that we may lead a quiet <clears throat> and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the, unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, whereunto I am ordained a preacher, and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. <clears throat> Let's um, commit our time to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Lord and Heavenly Father, we are very thankful for the opportunity to be here this evening to gather around your word. <clears throat> we pray, Lord, that you would just speak to each of our hearts this evening, and give us understanding of the passage that is before us. Lord, I pray that you would uh, strengthen me this evening through the power of the Spirit and give me the wisdom and guidance to speak. And I pray that it will be your words, that it will be your thoughts, and that, Lord, you would just have your, your will and your way in each of our hearts and lives this evening. I pray that your name will be praised and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now, of course, in uh, chapter 1 of First Timothy, Paul has... Uh, introduced the problem that was existing there at the church of Ephesus. Uh, the problem, of course, being false teachers who had entered into the church and were causing uh, havoc, were causing problems. And so Timothy had been charged by Paul to take a stand for the gospel, take a stand for the truth against these false teachers and to lead the people back to uh, the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel. And as we saw last time, in order to be successful in this task, Timothy was going to have to war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> Excuse me, this is what we looked at last time. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou, that thou, might, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. <clears throat> and so as we saw last time, this idea of warring a good warfare and holding on to the faith with a good conscience, he would need to do this if he was going to be successful in this task that was before him. And now this evening as we come to chapter 2, <clears throat> we find that Paul begins to elaborate upon, upon this charge that he has given to Timothy in chapter 1. He, he elaborates upon it. We see there in verse 1 the word therefore. He says, I exhort therefore. Okay, that word therefore points us back to uh, the previous chapter. It connects it. 
Okay, he tells us that this is a resumption of the same material. It's, it's not something new. He's still talking about the same idea. Uh, and so it's like, you know, on the basis of this, therefore, okay, on the basis of that charge, Timothy, you need to do this. Commentator Kent writes this. He says, in view of the charge given to Timothy throughout chapter 1 and restated in verse 18, Paul next enumerates a group of directives to guide the, t the young minister in carrying out the charge. And so he, he elaborates on the charge. He gives him this, this series of directives for him to seek to put into place there in the church at Ephesus. And he, he proceeds to give him some instructions concerning the worship of the local church. You see, false teachers, of course, entering into the church had evidently resulted in some problems when it came to public worship. And so Paul is seeking to get them back to what they should be doing as a church by giving Timothy these instructions. And the first of these instructions is uh, introduced to us here in verse 1 with the words, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. You see it says, I exhort therefore that first of all. The words first of all here speak of importance. And so Paul basically says, Timothy, the first thing you need to do, this is the thing of most importance, this is where we need to start. The first thing you need to do is deal with the matter of public prayer. And so concerning this matter of public prayer, Paul begins by presenting, first of all here this evening, the nature of public prayer, the nature of public prayer. Let's just read verse 1 again. It says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. In verse 1, Paul employs here four uh, different terms to describe the nature of public prayer. These four terms indicate for us the, the different aspects or the different elements that should be present when we pray. The first of these words here is the word supplications. Uh, and this word carries the idea of offering a request unto the Lord for a felt need. Okay, for a need, whether it's our own need or someone else's need, it's a request for that need to be met. Uh, one commentator put it this way. He said, supplications are humble requests which make... Sorry, which one makes in light of this or that concrete situation in which God alone can furnish the help that is needed. And so it's the idea that there's a situation before you and you know the only one can help is God. It's a need that needs to be met. So it's this idea of bringing our needs and the needs of others before the Lord. The second word, prayers, is the common word that we see used for prayer right throughout the New Testament. You know, oftentimes when you see the word prayer, this is this Greek word. And it's a word that emphasizes for us the sacredness of prayer, the sacredness of this, this whole idea of talking with God. You know, when we, when we pray, we're speaking with the Creator. We're speaking with God Almighty, the omnipotent God, the omniscient God, the immutable God, as we saw this morning. We're speaking with God. And so prayer is an act of worship. It's not just an expression of our wants. It's not just an expression of our needs. Prayer is an act of worship. And so this means that when we pray, we are to pray with reverence and fear in our hearts. Paul then adds to this the third word, intercessions. Now this word is only found here and in chapter 4, 
verse 5. Let's just read that. <clears throat> Chapter 4, verse 5 of First Timothy. It says, It is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. That word translated prayer is this same Greek word that we see translated intercessions here in our present passage. And so it's only found in these two places. And it's a word that speaks of confidence in prayer. Now, the English word intercessions is a little bit misleading because it sort of implies that it's limiting in the idea to just petitions on behalf of someone else. You know, you're making intercession for someone else to God. And that's included here, but the Greek word is more general. It speaks of this idea of any petition, bringing it with confidence unto the Lord, unto a superior. Hebert writes this, he says, It speaks of a personal and confiding intercourse with God on the part of one qualified to approach Him. A life lived in fellowship with God gives confidence in prayer. And so it's the idea of coming to God with our hearts right before Him so that we can pray with confidence. Confidence talking to our Heavenly Father and pray with confidence that He will hear our petitions and meet those needs. And then the final term employed here is translated as giving of thanks. In the Greek, it's one word, and you could translate it thanksgiving. And, you know, it's clear enough to understand, isn't it? This one's probably simple. You know, it's the idea of that our prayers should also be mingled with thanksgiving. It should be thanksgiving unto the Lord for his many blessings unto us, for his ever-present hand upon us, leading us, guiding us, protecting us. Hebert again writes this, he says, The three previous words indicate the character of praying, while the word thanksgivings points out the spirit in which our prayers are to be offered. It is the spirit of gratitude for blessings already received and those yet to be received. It is the complement of all true prayer. So thanksgiving is to accompany all these things. Thanksgiving, gratitude to God for his blessings unto us. And so we see that all four elements of prayer, Paul says, are to be employed when we pray. Not just as individuals, but when we pray as a church. When we have public prayer, we're to pray for people's needs. We are to pray reverently. We are to pray with confidence unto our Heavenly Father. And we're to do so with thanksgiving in our hearts. And having spoken about the nature of public prayer... Paul now secondly presents for us the objects of prayer. The objects of prayer. Just read with me again verse 1. It says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Verse 1 there ends with the words, it says, Be made for all men. Prayer in the church, in the form of supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving, is to be made for all men. The words be made here are in the present tense, and so they speak of a habitual, repeated practice. This is always to be the case. That when we pray, we are to pray habitually, for all men. For all men. Now this instruction is a, a timely reminder 
It's a timely reminder that our prayers should not just be about our own narrow interests. It shouldn't just be about the narrow interests of our body of believers. Rather, when we pray, we should pray for the saved. We should pray for our missionaries. We should pray for the unsaved, pray for the lost. We should pray for people near, people that are far away. We should pray for our enemies as well as our friends. Hendrickson notes this, the expression all men, as here used, means all men without distinction of race, nationality or social position. So it's the idea that our prayers <clears throat> are to include the needs and concerns of all people, no matter what their background is. All men should be on our hearts as believers. That's the point here, isn't it? There should be a love and a concern in our hearts for all people. And then in verse 3, Paul goes on and singles out one group in particular to mention and to, to focus our attention on. And he says they should receive our prayers within the church. Look in verse 3. He says, for king, uh, sorry, verse 2, for kings and for all that are in authority. And so he says that we are to pray for all men. And then he says that all men includes kings and all that are in authority. Now, you know, this group is easy for us to ignore, isn't it? It's easy for us as believers at times to ignore. It's easy, would have been easy for the believers at Ephesus to ignore the king and all those in authority. You know, the word translated kings here is the Greek word basileus. And it was used as a general designation for the, the superior ruler. And so it was applied, this term was applied at this time to the Roman Emperor, Caesar. And it was also applied to all lesser kings as well. And then the phrase, all that are in authority, it refers to all other officials. All other officials who are appointed by that supreme ruler, the king. You see, men who were appointed to govern, if you like, to be the governor of a certain region, or even to be the mayor of a city, that's what's included here in these all that are in authority, all in those positions of authority. And so simply put here, Paul <clears throat> has in mind all government officials, from the emperor, from Caesar at the top, right down to the, the city officials. All of these government officers should be the subject of the prayers of the church. In other words, they should be on our hearts as believers. We should have a genuine love and concern for them and where they're at, their spirituality, their position before God. A genuine love and concern that they would come to the Lord, that they would be saved. As we saw a couple of weeks ago in Romans chapter 13, Pastor Davies preached on it. You know, God is the one who has given our government its authority. Let's just go over there, Romans 13. <clears throat> Romans 13, we'll read from verse 1. It says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth, resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. 
Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. You know, Romans 13 makes it clear that you know, government receives its authority from God. We always have to remember and understand that. The authority they wield, they have, is given to them by God. Our part as believers is to pray for them. To pray for them in that task, in that role, in that position of authority. Now, of course, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, Nero was the emperor. Nero is the one that he's designating here with this word kings. You know, Nero, a man who had not much time for Christians, a man who set about persecuting the believers on a state level. You know, government officials at this time were not the friends of believers. They were not on the side of the Christians. But Paul here reminds these believers at Ephesus, he says, you can't hate those officials. That's basically what he's trying to tell them here. You must not hate those officials, hate Nero and hate those other government officials who are against you. You can't hate them and you can't show them that lack of respect for authority. Rather, what you need to do is pray for them. Pray earnestly for them. It's a genuine prayer too, isn't it? It's not just going through the motions. It's a genuine prayer from the hearts for these men in authority. One commentator wrote this. He said, this Christian attitude towards the state is of utmost importance when the civil authorities are perverted sorry whether the civil authorities are perverted or not they must be made subjects of prayer it doesn't matter whether they're perverted or not does it they must be the subject of our prayers and this is our great responsibility that we've been given by God to pray for our government officials you know even if we can't respect them as a person we must respect the office. You know, even if they're totally against believers and they're passing immoral, ungodly laws, we still must remember them in prayer with genuine love and concern. As one commentator noted, he said, this prayer for those who mistreat is still the finest safeguard against the sin of hatred. It's a wonderful statement, isn't it? Prayer for those who mistreat is still the finest safeguard against the sin of hatred. Best thing we can do is pray for them with a genuine heart, with love and concern. You see, by praying for our governments, it helps us to remain respectful, doesn't it? It helps us to keep that, that right attitude, that Christian attitude towards authority. An attitude which is a reflection of our Saviour. And then Paul adds at the end of the verse, he says that we should do this. He says, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Now these words here indicate the results of praying for all men and praying for those in authority rather than what we should pray for. Okay? Rather than saying that we should pray that we would lead a quiet and peaceable life, it's saying that this is the result. This is the, the result of doing that, of praying 
for all men, for those in authority. It's the result of us praying that we can lead a quiet and peaceable life. Now, the commentator Vincent, he explained the meaning of these two words well. He said the first word translated quiet here speaks of a quiet arising from the absence of outward disturbance. The word peaceable speaks of a tranquility arising from within. And so one's outward, one's inward. Okay? And he puts the, it, it together here really well. Vincent says this, he says, Thus, the peaceable man is the composed, discreet, self-contained man who keeps himself from rash doing. The quiet man is he who is withdrawn from outward disturbances. Hence, quiet here may imply keeping aloof from political agitations. So it's this idea that there's a peace within and there's peace without, and it's not really based on circumstances. It's not based on circumstances. So the point is that when we've committed our government to the Lord in prayer, we are able to then live a quiet and peaceable life. Because we know that God's in control, don't we? Okay, if we've come before the Lord in prayer and we've earnestly committed them to prayer with love and concern, even if they are against us, we still can live a quiet and peaceable life, can't we? We can still live that quiet and peaceable life because we know God's in control. We've committed it to His care and we can trust that His will will be done. See, knowing this, with this assurance, we can live a life that's quiet, a life that is apart from, removed from, political agitation and we can live a life that's peaceable or composed controlled within because we've committed it to the Lord and Paul then adds to this at the end of the verse and he says that we are to do this live this quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty now these two words describe the character of this life we're to conduct ourselves with all godliness or piety and honesty or respectability, dignity. And so it's the idea that in leading this quiet and peaceable life, we are to do nothing that creates unnecessary disturbance. Nothing that will bring shame and reproach upon the name of Christ. It's the idea of being blameless in our conduct and blameless in our attitude before man and also before God. Now, as I was considering this passage this week, and considering what it really means for us as believers to be able to live a quiet and peaceable life with all godliness and honesty, the example of Paul and Silas singing in the prison at midnight came to mind. You know, in Acts chapter 16, we know the story well, so we won't turn there. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, of course, have been arrested and they've been thrown into prison. And so they're suffering for their faith. They've been unjustly accused, unjustly treated by the government officials. They're suffering in prison. And yet Paul and Silas at midnight are able to sing praises under God. There's joy in their hearts. There's peace in their hearts. Why were they able to do this? Because they were trusting in the Lord, weren't they? They committed it to the Lord in prayer. And so even as they are suffering, they're still able to lead a quiet life, a life that's unaffected by those outward disturbances. And they're able to lead a, live a 
peaceable life, there's peace within. And they did it with godliness and honesty, didn't they? Godliness and honesty, they maintained their blamelessness, their conduct, their attitude was exemplary there in prison. It brought glory to the Lord. You see, the point is this verse here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 doesn't guarantee that if we pray for our government, we will live a life that's free from persecution. It doesn't guarantee that. It can't guarantee that because God's word is very clear. All who live godly will suffer persecution. So it can't mean that. And nor does it mean that if we pray for our government, they will always make good decisions that benefit us as Christians, that benefit our lives. Rather, it means that if we commit them to the Lord in prayer and leave it with him and have a love and concern for them, then like Paul and Silas, we can have peace within and without. We can be removed from those political disturbances. Peace within, peace without, because we've trusted it to the Lord's care. And so in these first two verses, Paul has made it very clear the nature of prayer, the nature of public prayer in particular, and who the object of our prayer should be. Namely, we are to pray for all men, including our government officials. And then in verses 3 to 7, Paul makes it clear to us the reason why. Why should we have this love and concern for all men? This attitude of prayer for all men. Verse 3. So this is our third point this evening, the reason for prayer. Look in verse 3. It says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, the teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. In this section, Paul now gives some weighty supports to his appeal that we pray for all men. And the reasons that he puts forward here sort of build upon each other. Okay, there's like a logical progression through ideas here, progression of facts. He begins by declaring in verse 3, he says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. He starts out by saying it's good and acceptable. The word good speaks of intrinsic good. It speaks about the fact that prayer itself is excellent. Just in and of itself, prayer is a good thing. And then he adds to this that it's acceptable in the sight of God. In other words, that it pleases the Lord. And so before anything else, the reason we are to pray for all men, the reason we are to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all men, is that it's good and it pleases God. But then he builds upon that. In verse 4 he tells us why it pleases the Lord. Look in verse 4. He says, Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. You see, prayer for all people of all backgrounds, all races, all walks of life, even our government, is pleasing unto the Lord. Why? Because God wants them to get saved. Plain and simple. God loves them. God is concerned about them. 
God wants all men to be saved. This is the desire of our God's heart. This is his passion. This doesn't mean that all men will get saved. We know that. Okay? Men have a free choice, a free will. But it expresses for us the heart of God. Okay? He will have all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's his desire. That's our Lord's passion. Now we see his love clearly expressed in John 3.16, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel is a whosoever gospel, isn't it? It's for all people. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9, it tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, God loves all people, and his will is that all would be saved. And thus, when you and I pray for all men, when we stop and we have that love and concern for them, we're praying for their salvation. We're praying that God would work in their hearts. We're praying God would lead them, bless them. Beloved, we're praying according to the will of God. It's a prayer that God will answer because it's according to his will. It's a prayer that is acceptable in his sight. And then he builds upon this in verse 5 and 6. As Paul declares, the reason God desires and he's able to save all men, is that he alone is God. And he alone is the Savior. Look in verse 5. He says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Paul says, at the start of verse 5, he says, For there is one God. There's one God. There's only one God that those government officials are answerable to. It's our God. There's only one God that all mankind is answerable to. It's our God. The commentator Kent writes this, There's not one God for this nation, one for another, one God for slaves and one for free men, one God for rulers, one God for subjects. No, all men are answerable to the same God. For he alone is the creator. And therefore it doesn't matter who they are, they all stand condemned before the same God, in need of the same salvation that can only be provided by one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says next, isn't it? For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. If they're going to come back to God and have fellowship with God, there is only one way. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mediator. The word mediator, of course, speaks of someone who stands between two parties and brings reconciliation. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the perfect God-man. He alone is the mediator between God and man. He is the only one who can reconcile us to God, bring us back to fellowship with him. In verse 6, we see the reason why Christ can do this. It says, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. The reason Christ can act as the mediator and he alone can do it is because he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sin, as a ransom to pay the redemption price so that all mankind might be saved, so that all men might come unto God through him. And then Paul concludes all this in verse 7. By saying, and this is the very reason I'm be, I've been sent to the Gentiles. Look at verse 7. He says, Whereunto 
I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, the teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Paul concludes, he points back to his own ministry and he says, This is the very reason that God has sent me unto the Gentiles. He says, I was ordained a preacher, an apostle of the Gentiles. Why? Because it's God's desire, it's God's passion, it's God's will that all men be saved, not just the Jews. He says, this is why I've been sent to the Gentiles. And this is why Paul had a burden for the Gentiles. All men need God. All men need the Savior. You see, this logical progression sums up the reason why we must pray for all men including those government officials that we don't necessarily like. We must pray for all men. Why? Because it's good and acceptable to God. It is good and acceptable. Why? Because it's His will that they get saved. And He alone is able to save them, for He alone is God. And Christ alone is the mediator between God and man. Lover, therefore, like Paul, we must have a burden for the souls of all men. All men need the Lord. All men are dear unto the heart of God. Beloved, we must make supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving for all men, even for kings and for those in authority. And you know the wonderful result of that heart of prayer? When we have that love and concern for these people and that respect as well for authority, it all goes in there. When we have that heart of prayer... God says that we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word this evening. And Lord, we do pray that you'd help us all to have this genuine love and concern for all men. This love and concern even for those in positions of authority. Lord, help us to bring them before you in prayer. Lord, we do indeed pray even for our government this evening that you would have your hand upon them. We pray for their salvation. We pray for your hand of leading upon them. But Lord, help us to commit them to you in prayer and help us then to live that quiet and peaceable life. Remove from the outward disturbances and at peace within, knowing that you're in control. Lord, help us to do so in all godliness and all honesty. Lord, just work in our hearts this evening and pray these things in Jesus' name.